Hi everyone, I'm Singh and I'll be doing the Bible reading today. So we're going to be reading from Romans 4, um, 1 to 13, and then we're going to jump to 23 and 25. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hands and one of the hospitality team can pass you a paper Bible. Um, if you get one of those, it's on page 782. So um, thanks Jeff for giving us that time, that instrumental, you know, make some prezies uncomfortable. But um, it's also a good time to, yeah, really think about, um, yeah, coming to God's word. And it's a really special time of our service where we get to hear from God and see him reveal himself um, and, yeah, explain how the world is, why it is through history. So let's read from Romans 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And then keep going down to verse 23, and we'll just read the last few sentences. The words it was credited to him were not written were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Well, Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it. It is a true and living word. And Lord, we do pray now as we, uh, as we, as we hear from, from Romans chapter 4 uh, that your spirit will be at work in our hearts. Help us to um, have open ears, op- open ears and open hearts and open minds to receive it, um, but to have hearts that will um, be moved by it so that we can live a life that does please you, Lord. Uh, so we do pray for that uh, now. In your son's name, amen. Uh, let me start by asking you a question. What would give you security in life? How would you answer that? You don't need to answer it, but how many of you thought about it like just then and you thought, what would give me security? Would it, is, it, is it more money? Is that the first thing that came to your mind? Is it uh, perhaps buying your first house? You know, everyone thinks buying a house, that will give me security in life. How about having a stable job? 
and a steady income that will give you security in life. Uh, most of the time, most people would think that, wouldn't they? Money, a house, a steady income, steady job. But how many of us actually think uh, security looks like healthy, loving relationships? Quite interestingly, I, I read this uh, article this week thinking through this, what actually gives us security in life. And while money can buy you a roof over your head and clothing on your back uh, so you can survive and give you a sense of security, have you ever considered that us being human beings, social creatures, uh, we need close relationships to give us protection and security as well. We need relationship. And this is what I've observed in our society. What we've done is we've heightened, haven't we, the need for uh, material possessions and our, our sense to, for our sense of security. We think getting the, the, the high-paying job, the, the bigger house, more stuff. If I just have more stuff, I'll feel more secure. And what do we do to get that? We spend more hours of our life um, pouring ourselves into our jobs, filling up our schedules, pouring our energy out so that we can get that, try and grab hold of that sense of security in the luxury, perhaps, that we possess, confusing the needs, really, of shelter and clothing with the wants of, of what Gucci and a nice crib, right? But here's the thing. Here's the false security we've all fallen victim of. We think more money and more stuff will give us security, but does it? The article I read was by a guy called Josh Becker, and it's in this uh, website, Becoming Minim uh, a Minimalist, right? Becoming Minimalist. And it says, security found, he writes it, security found in possessions is fragile and fleeting at best. I mean, we all know that, don't we? There's, there's a lot of research out there that shows that security is found really, actually, in depth and substance of loving relationships and friendships. While having a, a steady income uh, is, is good and having, you know, gives us a sense of security, you know, we need to be honest with ourselves. Over time, you'll only have so much security from that. You'll reach a line where more money doesn't give you more security. Having good, solid relationships, though, it gives a sense of fulfillment and lasting security, doesn't it? At least in this lifetime. Now, I'm a Christian, and I was reading this article, and while that might be true, that you can find a fulfillment from having secure, loving relationships, I started asking the question, do we feel it? Do you feel it? Is it enough? Can you say you feel entirely secure in this life? Many of us don't even think about it, but many of us would say that we don't. What about our relationship with God? A question that we all need to ask ourselves. Do we feel secure about that? Or would you describe life and maybe your relationship with God something more filled with anxiety, uncertainty, and insecurity? I get it, in life that many of us, we feel, uh, we feel that, don't we? We feel anxious and we go through life thinking um, that, that things around us just crumble and we don't have any real control. But today we're going to see something. We're going to see that there is a confidence. We're going to see that there is a security we can have in God that is far greater and lasting, far greater and lasting than anything else, our world, our possessions, our careers, even what our relationships can offer. It's a relationship with God. I want to get into it. This is really interesting what chapter 4 tells us. Keep your Bibles open so you can follow along with me. I'm going to be making references throughout the chapter. But what's going to help us find that ultimate security in life is understanding that we're justified by faith. Uh, an, an idea that I've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, but we're going to be thinking about how that works. How does justification by faith works? Who it applies to and what it means for us today. That's what we're going to get through, those three questions. How it works, who it applies to, and what it means for us. Paul finished our last chapter, chapter 3, talking about how justified by faith. What it does not mean? It means we're being made right with God through our faith in Jesus. That's what we heard last week. Uh, you can go online and listen to it if you haven't already. If that is true, though, there is nothing we can boast about. 
There's nothing we can boast about in our salvation. Chapter 3 ends with that. There's nothing we can boast about except in God's grace alone. It's God's initiative. His saving work that justifies us, that makes us right with Him. How does it work, though? It's by faith in God's promises. And so what we start here in chapter 4 is with a couple of characters from the Old Testament. I love this because Paul really lawyers the people here. And, you know, I've got a background in law, so I really like how he does this. He just he brings out the big guns. Abraham. Let's talk about Abraham. Chapter 4, verse 1. Let's read it again. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. He believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. Verse 4, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And you see our tapestry of grace, it starts in history. It goes all the way back to Genesis, where we hear about the story of Abraham. If you don't know anything about Abraham, Abraham is a guy back in the beginning of the Bible, thousands of years before Jesus, and Paul is using Abraham to show us that the gospel, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace, is in it continues on. What's the word I'm looking for? In continuation from the Old Testament. Right? And so what he does here, he uses Abraham, and later on he's going to use King David as well. Again, big guns in Jewish history, highly respected people in, in, in Israel's history. If you brought them into the court of law, their testimonies would be solid evidence to back up any case. So Abraham, he fits, uh, Abraham, he fits into the salvation history. He shows us how the gospel is one of faith in God and God's grace at work. So Paul, the author of Romans, he's talking to those in the church, isn't he? And what we've discovered over these last couple of weeks is he's, he's addressing people now uh, in the church who have a Jewish um, ancestry. They're, they're, uh, so, so they pride themselves in being a people set apart for God, a people who have the law. And their belief was that the law was going to justify them. It was going to make them right with God. If they follow the law and they're obedient, then they'll be right with God. Paul here is saying, look at Abraham, one of the forefathers of the Jewish religion. Everyone knows him. He's a patriarch. He himself was saved. He himself, though, wasn't saved by following the law. He was not justified by works, but justified by faith. This is what Paul is saying. Verse 3 is key. Abraham believed God. And that, it was credited to him as righteousness. What Paul touches upon is really something we all use in our vernacular, right? Everyday vernacular. We, we, We use a credit card to buy things, don't we? And when we use a credit card, what happens? That money is credited to us from the bank. Uh, you'll get credited something when you do something, uh, maybe because you, you worked hard for it even. So, so you'll get credited money uh, in a job as an obligation. That's what verse 4 is saying, because ob- you're deserving of those wages as well. So we know this understanding of what credited means, don't we? Abraham didn't do anything, though. He just believed. He trusted God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It wasn't a wage. It was, an, it was a gift. It was what made him right. And so Paul uses this historical time that shows that this is how God has always worked. It was a gift. Righteousness has been a gift through faith. Because you see, the law, it didn't actually, the law didn't come until Moses came into the story. Remember Moses, the guy who, who parted the Red Sea, the guy who took Israel out of Egypt, slavery under Egypt? He took them out and freed them. That came hundreds and hundreds of years after Abraham. 
The law started many years after Abraham. So how can Abraham have been justified by the law if it came much later in his life? He himself isn't living under the law, but under God's promises for him. That through faith he would receive righteousness. Now what was that promise? What's really interesting here is Paul is quoting something from the scriptures. From something thousands of years ago, he takes the reader, the first century Jewish person who's reading this in Rome, he takes them all the way back to Genesis 15. Right? Uh, I've got it on the screen, I think, Genesis 15. You can follow along, you can open up in your Bibles as well. It says this, this is God talking to Abraham. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Uh, this was his name before Abraham. Abraham, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your great reward. But Abraham says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate in Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. This is the promise. Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is huge. This is huge because uh, if you know the story of Abraham and Sarah, it's actually told in Romans 4 later on that we didn't read. Sarah was barren. Abraham was 100 years old when this promise was given to him. He had to have faith. He had to trust God. And so here in Romans 4, 3, Paul is saying, helping them see, this is how it started from the beginning. Righteousness didn't come from following the law. It came from faith and trust in God. And that's credited to Abraham as righteousness. But then there's another example. He spits it out from King David as well. Another important figure, one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. Paul says, even David understood that to be blessed, to have righteousness, credit to us isn't from our works, it's from faith. And if you've got your Bibles open, he quotes there in verse 7 and 8, a few lines from Psalm 32. David wrote about this. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Against them. Here he's showing us that even David believes we don't earn salvation. We're gifted with it. We're blessed by God. He's building this case, isn't he? Paul's lawyering them, helping them to see this. Hey, look, I was once mistaken too. I lived by the law, thinking that it will save me. But look here in the scriptures. Look here in salvation history. We are justified by our obedience to the law. We'll never be able to obey it perfectly. We can't save ourselves. Abraham got this. King David got this as well. They could both see that it's faith in God alone. And it's so against the grain, isn't it? It's so against the grain of what we believe and how we're raised. Read what Paul says in verse 5 again. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It's a key verse in chapter 4. In the first four chapters, it's key. If this is how Abraham was justified, so it is with you and I. It's so counterintuitive. It's so against the grain of society. Because what, what are we taught? We're taught good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. I was talking to, um, I was at a, a, a party last night as one of our 22-year-olds. And it's, a, it's been a long time since I've been to a 22-year-old party. But um, I went to this party and I, I chatted to someone there who uh, has a Catholic upbringing. And, and he was asking me questions about the difference between how we see um, Christianity. And, and he shared with me like, how he's raised. I just, I'm supposed to just be a good person, do good things, and God will accept me. And that's this whole idea, isn't it? Good people will be accepted. They'll go to heaven. Bad people will go to hell. Any religious or spiritual person would conclude that, right? And, and sure, there are our atheist friends out there who just believe that there's a nothingness after this life. 
but most people would generally think there's a good place to go to. There's even a TV show, who's watched it? The Good Place on Netflix, right? A lot of you guys have watched it. The whole premise, and uh, there is a twist in it, but the whole premise is generally the good people will go to heaven, a good place, a place of paradise, and the bad people will go to you know, the serial killers, the dictators, whatever, they belong in the bad place. The demons are there too, right? That's the premise, that's the idea at least. We all have this idea of a good place and a bad place. It brings out what the human heart desires and hopes for, doesn't it? If we do good things, we'll go to heaven. And there's something better to look, look, out for, to, to look forward to. Look at what Paul says. It's so key to understanding our Christianity. The, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies who? Trust God who justifies the good? Justifies the happy? The charitable? The church worker? The Sunday school teacher? Fill in the blank. We have this impression God will justify those who are generally good people in our society. But it doesn't say that, does it? Verse 5 says, To the one who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly. You, you, you might have a different version of the Bible, and it says the wicked even. It uses the word the wicked. Their faith is credited as righteousness. It's so counterintuitive, isn't it? It goes completely against the grain of what we believe is good. Because the ungodly, they deserve punishment, don't they? They don't deserve righteousness. If they're wicked, they deserve punishment. Yet, what have we been learning these last few weeks? Don't you and I realize that we are actually the ungodly? That we're the ones who are actually deserving of the punishment? Abraham and David, these two examples he uses, yeah, sure, they were highly respected uh, in Israel's history, but they were just as sinful, just as broken, just as wicked as you and I. When he justifies the ungodly, he declares us innocent. Last week, we, we saw that. We need a savior to rescue us. And I know many of us here might get offended thinking, oh, well, I'm ungodly, I'm wicked. But actually, before God, none of us reach his standard of good. None of us reach his standard of godliness. He's perfect, we're imperfect. We can only be justified, made right, when we put our faith in Jesus. You know, when you think about it, doesn't it, when we think we can work for goodness, work for godliness, when we think we can work to be accepted, doesn't that actually raise our insecurity? It raises our anxiety. Doing enough good works to earn God's favor, will it ever be enough? It makes us anxious and we feel overwhelmed and insecure if it was going to be completely up to us. God actually provides this better way. Faith in Jesus. That's the only way. God is just and he is the justifier. Chapter 3 says that. We can only be made right in God who justifies the ungodly. And like Abraham, our faith is counted as righteousness. A security that is dependent upon us by the faithfulness of God and his character. See, that's how it works. Paul continues the, the argument about who this is for by again helping them see this aspect of the law. Before I read verse 9, right? Uh, before I read verse 9, let me give some context. Um, Singh read it for us earlier, but this idea of circumcision, right? It was, it was, it was a, a law given to Israel so that male Jews who were born into God's covenant people, promised people, Israel, they, were, uh, they had to go through the act of circumcision. Right? It was a mark that showed them that they were set apart from the rest of the world. Let's read Romans 4, 9 to 12 again, and let's read that in context so we understand what's going on. Verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited to? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. 
And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. A lot of circumcised, the word repeated like a million times there in those three verses. But when we hear those words, what we need to instantly remember, what we need to think about, when the Bible talks about circumcised and uncircumcised, immediately you're thinking about people groups. Right? Circumcised are the Jewish, God's uh, people in the Old Testament, Israel. Uncircumcised uh, is a reference generally to Gentiles, non-Jews. Here's the thing Paul is saying, the promise, the justification by faith is for both Jew and Gentile. Why? 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 Because Abraham is a father of both. He himself was actually a Gentile at one stage. Because Abraham is the father of both. He, he was the father of Gentiles and he's the father of Israel. And he was given the promises. Remember, we just read Genesis 15. He believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. You know, that idea of circumcision, that idea didn't even come until a couple of chapters after Genesis 15. We read Genesis 15, right? That, that he'll have lots of descendants, trust in God. That, what, that's what he did. Genesis 17, two chapters after, that's when God says, circumcise your kid. And everyone after you, get them circumcised. See, the idea of circumcision didn't come until after the faith. Uh, uh, if you've ever been through our baptism sessions and those who are going to join us later today, that's how it works. Uh, the circumcision was an act Abraham did not because it would save him. Circumcision didn't save him. He was already justified by God through faith. Circumcision was obeyed by Abraham as a response to his justification, as a response to God's promises and grace to him. So you see what's happening. You see what's happening? I always say this, right? You guys know where I'm going with this? We have, I hope you have it tattooed in your minds by now. But what is happening here is in the act of circumcision, that chopping off of the foreskin, it's an outward sign of an inner reality. Right? That symbol of circumcision, I'm not pointing down, that symbol of circumcision, <laughs> right? It was obeyed by God because it was, a, it was a symbol, it was an outward sign of an inner reality. That symbol of circumcision was to show God has made his promises made his promises to me, and, and I belong to God. And so you see the parallels, don't you, in the New Testament. Gentiles, we get baptized. We get baptized as an outward sign of an inner reality, even better, an outward sign of God's promises for us. We're justified by Christ. And let me sneakily add this too. We baptize our children because we raise them under that same promise, the covenant of grace that God's promise is for us and our families. The promise of God, that salvation is for us who live by this truth, that God is our God and Jesus is our Savior. And so we go through the waters of baptism because we proclaim Christ's death for us that has made us righteous, clean before God. You see, the promise is for Jew and Gentile alike. The offer is for all people who put their faith in God through Jesus, the one who saves us, which is so important for the church to hear. Today, in 2021, in an ancient Rome as well, God doesn't see us by racial lines, by our ethnicities. He is impartial. And for the Roman church, being Jewish doesn't make you superior to the Gentiles. This is what Paul needs to say to his church in his time. Because there's a lot of ethnic divide there. You know, it's really sad in our own history, right? In 2021, we can look back and we can see so, many, uh, so much division in racism. Uh, slavery has left a huge stain on humanity. 
you know, that, that there are people who, who, who think because of the color of their skin, they're inferior. Uh, it was so sad. This, I don't know if you saw it on the news this last week. It, it happened in Melbourne. Uh, it, it was at the Ch- Channel 9 studio in Melbourne. The leader of a neo-Nazi group bashed up a security guard because of the color of his skin. It's so unbelievable that people still think, to this day, believe that black people are in fear because of the color of their skin. It doesn't make sense. Because that's not, before God, we're all equal. God made us all equal. And we're all given the opportunity. Hear what Romans 4 is saying. We're all given the opportunity to find Him, to know Him, and to the justification, the salvation that comes from faith and trust in Him. The circumcised or the uncircumcised, our ethnicity doesn't save us. And you know why Abraham is so key to understanding this? Because he was a Gentile. You know, what uh, Romans 4.17, we didn't read, I think I've got it on the screen for you as well. Romans 4.17 says this, As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that things that were not. Abraham is the, is the father of the Christian uh, faith, really, isn't he? Not just the Jewish faith, but the father of the Christian faith. Because his trust is in God, who delivered us in Jesus Christ, the one who fulfills God's promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise. God is the one who will save both Jew and Gentiles, all people who put their faith in him and his promises. This is why Abraham is so key to understanding how salvation works. We've established it, right? We've established how it works. We've now established who's it for. It's for all people who put their faith. But what does it mean for us? This is how the chapter finishes, seeing read for us, verse 23. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? What does it mean for us? It's, well, we get to have that righteousness. It's credited to us when we believe in him who, who fulfilled the promise of bringing a Messiah. God's justifying work means that through our faith, we've been credited righteousness as well. The big word here in theological circles, right? If you ever go to Bible college, the word here is imputation. Or you read some textbooks on this stuff. We've been imputed righteousness. Jesus' righteousness was given to us. Our unrighteousness was placed upon him. He was the great substitute. He was delivered over to death for our sin, raised to life for our justification, so we could be made right with God. Abraham had to look forward. Promises were given to him, but he had to look forward in hope for those promises to be fulfilled, that he'll one day have kids. And he did. He one day had kids. But he had to wait in hope and have faith in those promises. For us, we look, actually, we look back, don't we? We look back at the cross of Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled the very promises that were made throughout history. We can see the big tapestry of grace. He's the one we put our faith in. In all, the th- in all things, look to Jesus because he himself, he's the object of our faith. And it's in him that just- we're justified. I want to hammer this home, and I've said this in previous weeks. I think we need to understand that it's actually not our faith that saves us. It's the one that we have faith in, the object. Too often we'll think that we need to get right with God means I, if I need to get right with God, I need to to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. That's the first thing we think of. I need to do a list of good works. I need to have more faith. But that's not what makes us right with God. Jesus is what makes you right with God. Jesus is the answer. I can't hammer this home enough. Anyone ask you how to get right with God, the answer is always Jesus, okay? It empties us of any self-righteousness. Abraham wasn't deserving. He was just some random guy chosen out of obscurity. 
right? Just, if you read the story of Abraham, Genesis 12, uh, he was just some random guy. God chose him. God chose him and he gave him promises. It's so, it's, it's so subtle, but don't we catch ourselves thinking uh, that if I believe in God, then I'll be saved, right? And, and the emphasis isn't so much on, on, on God, but on us. I believed in God. The emphasis is on me, what I have done. I believed, I chose God, I put my faith in him. And often we think about this with baptism as well. Now I'm talking about baptism because we're going to do it later, but baptism, I'm going to get baptized because I've chosen to follow Jesus. Friends, our baptism is a symbol of God choosing and justifying you. That's what baptism symbolizes. It's a declaration that God has shown his love and grace to you and saved you in Jesus. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. The emphasis, if it's on me, makes me proud and self-righteous. Because I believed in God, I'm worthy. That's why I should be accepted. That's why I should be allowed into heaven. You can be someone of strong faith and belief. You can serve at church every week. You can be someone who's a good person by society standards. But it's not about you. You aren't a Christian because you did all the right things. It's completely by God's providence and mercy. And yes, we have to make real life decisions in life. Sure, you have to make choices of going to church and opening your Bible and reading and accepting Jesus into your life. You have real choices you have to make. But faith, that's merely an instrument by which righteousness is credited. He, he chose you to receive the promises. He gifted you with the opportunity to hear the gospel, to respond to it. He, by his grace, led you even here to this church today. Perhaps you, you were born into a Christian family. You had great Christian parents who raised you in the faith. Or you had a Christian friend who invited you to church one day. We, our, our faith can't be, our own faith, we, we can't boast in that. Because guess what? When we put ourselves at the center of the picture, if we put it all upon ourselves, that if we just have stronger faith then we'll be saved, we're just going to feel insecure. We're going to feel insecure about our relationship with God. Because let's, let's be honest, we're human. And what does being human mean? It means we're fragile. It means we're fickle. It means uh, we get hurt so easily. We get jealous. We get envious. We get outraged. We're greedy. We're proudful. We're stubborn. Our feelings sway day by day. The littlest of things can move our hearts like the winds that direct a sailboat, right? The world says, trust your heart, but man, my heart can never make up its mind. Trust your heart, but my heart is so deceitful. We can put our trust in ourselves, but it'll only lead to anxiety, uncertainty, and insecurity. Where is deep security going to be found? You see, when we put all the pieces of the puzzle together that Paul has given to us so far, we need to admit it, don't we? Chapter 3 says that all of humanity has fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are right with God. Sin means we've got a relationship issue with God. Of course there's going to be an insecurity that we feel in. Think about it. If God is the creator and, he, and he's created us, and if we're not right with God, we should feel insecure about the world around us. We'll feel insecure. And so what will we do as human beings? We'll find things around us that will fill that hole of insecurity. We'll buy more things. Buy more shoes. That will make me feel better. Buy, buy a new car, you know, and that's what we do in our midlife crisis, right? We, we buy a new car or a quarter-life crisis. Hope, we, we hope that on our social media, all the likes and all the follows will fill that insecurity in us. We hit the gym. We, we get our makeup on point. We play with the filters in our life. We seek after wealth and sex, hoping that we won't feel the brokenness of our world, that the anxieties of life will just go away. And we feel all the weight of insecurity, and we all wish that money or love would buy the security, this would, would, would take away that insecurity, but it won't. And it's because of this. 
the world out there and our hearts in here, we're, we're stained by sin. There's a relational problem. There's a relationship problem with God. We aren't right with him. We are the wicked. We are the ungodly. The, the, the default nature of our hearts is to reject God and put ourselves in the spotlight. Yet God sees us in our need. What does God do? He justifies those who put their faith in him. He gives us a security with him that we can have. So uh, it's so important. Let, you know, and, and who is that? It's Jesus. He's our, he's our security. He's our guarantee. What can, I, what can give you an eye security in this life? Uh, for Abraham, he looked at the promises, right? The promise that he'll be a father of nations. But for us, we look at salvation history and we see Jesus did come. Jesus did come and he lived and he died and he was raised again so that you and I could be justified. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's where you and I will find security and safety in a world of anxiety and uncertainty. I don't know if you realize that, but that changes everything. It changes our whole perspective, our entire outlook on life. And it ultimately should bring us to a place of rest, doesn't it? Think about what do you feel insecure about? What makes you anxious about the future? We've all got something that makes us feel anxious. Maybe being in a dead-end job and not knowing where this job, this career is going to take us. Maybe not knowing what's the point of life. We have, some of us you know, in, in our 20s are feeling this existential crisis. What am I doing with myself? Our whole generation is anxious and depressed. Or it's, it's on the rise at least. But imagine if you knew the security of God, that we are justified by faith, that it was his doing and his initiative. It changes everything, doesn't it? Your self-worth and how people perceive you, you well, guess what? You're known by God. He loves you enough to send his son to die for you. You can find security in your self-worth because you don't need to define yourself by the world's standards. You don't need to define yourself by trying to impress others, but by how God, the God of the universe, sees you. What about the anxiety about your future, your career, your family, your success? Surely we get anxious about those things, but God shows us, hey, you can trust in his promises. You can find security in the fact that this is all temporary. And while it might be painful and you're constantly anxious about the here and now, about your livelihood, let the eternal security that you have in Jesus shape how you see and live today. Find rest, safety, and security in him. But for those here who are working out what it means to be a Christian, those here who are still on the path of trying to figure out, am I a Christian yet? Do I want to believe in Jesus? Is this all real? I really do hope you'll see this truth about God that you too can have and embrace. I hear it a lot from people. They say to me, yeah, yeah, I get Christianity. I get the, I get the idea of it. Um, but before I follow Jesus, I just want to clean up my life. I want to, I want to make sure I'm, I'm ready to become a Christian. I want to you know, make sure I've, I've stopped doing all this bad stuff. There are things I need to do. There are things I need to do before I get baptized as well. All right. But let me point out, if that's you, it's precisely what God is talking about here. It's precisely in our sin, in our wickedness, when our life is a mess, that Jesus justifies us. It's not about us. It's about his righteousness that we receive when we put our faith in him. You see, we can come as we are. We can come as we are to church before God, let's be honest, none of us here have it all together. I know we can look around the room and we can see others and we can compare our lives. That's what social media does. We compare our lives and we go, man, those people have it all together. Those Christians, man, they seem to have it all together. I'm not there yet. I don't think I'm a Christian because that person is so much more of a stronger Christian than I am, right? And so we're not ready to take the step. And we do that, right? And we look at people around us, oh, being, well, they have all their lives. And we do it with just general life stuff, you know, the, the nice house, the nice family, the, the car, the career. 
It looks like they have their security on these possessions and lifestyles, so we compare ourselves. We look at them with envy. But you know what? Even those people who look like they have all their lives together, <laughs> they need Jesus too. They need Jesus as much as you do. Even me. I, I know no one's envying my life, but if, if you are, I don't have it all together. I profess Jesus as my Savior. I can't save myself. I need Jesus so desperately every day. I need to constantly trust and turn to Him and, and, and fall before the cross, fall on my knees before the cross. I fail all the time. If I were to say, wait, God, wait for me to clean up my life, man, I don't think I'd ever be ready because my life is honestly always a mess. God says, come home. You don't need to justify your existence with this false security that the world offers you. God says, come home. He welcomes us in through Jesus, his righteousness for our unrighteousness. Even you and I, who, who don't always have our life put together, you know, I was asking people uh, this week, a couple of people at least, what they think about when they, when they think about uh, things that we find security in and, and the false sense of security that, that we have. And they both thought of the same uh, illustration, the story of the Titanic. I don't know if you guys are taught about Titanic in school these days. It's an epic, epic story, right, of false security. It's an epic story of false security. I don't know um, if, you, uh, if you've watched the movie, but in the early 1900s, this is a real story, it was one of the greatest, largest, majestic cruise ships ever built. It had heaps of safety features. It was, so, it was built so well. First-class accommodation, it was often said, right, in the media and, and, and um, people who, who, who sailed it, it was the unsinkable ship. That's what it was known as back then. They were so confident in this that they only had enough life, lifeboats for half the amount of passengers. That's how confident they were. They had 20 lifeboats for about 1,000 people, and on that boat, the day that it sunk, there were 2,000 people on board. It's ridiculous, isn't it? People went on eating, people went on drinking and dancing when the ship hit the iceberg. There were warning signs going off, but they were unconcerned because they had this confidence, they felt secure in this unsinkable ship. They had a false sense of security. And in doing so, they had a great complacency too. We can go through life just like as if we were on the Titanic. We can go through life eating, drinking, dancing, unconcerned about uh, the world around us feeling confident and secure in our false securities around us, in our careers, in our families, in our jobs, in our, in our finances. And while that's all necessary for life and survival, do we know that we, do we have a security for eternity? Do we have a security with God? See, those things uh, will, like the Titanic, only ever give us a false sense of security in this life. But in Jesus, we can have an eternal security with God that's not dependent on us but entirely on God's mercy and love for you and I. Because of your faith in Him, righteousness has been credited to you and I. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that Jesus is the one who died on our behalf, that through Him, righteousness has been credited to us, that He takes our unrighteousness so we can be clean before you. Lord, help us to see that, that it's not in our faith that we boast, it's in Jesus alone. Help us to be a people, Lord, who are on about Jesus, who are on about loving Jesus with our lives. Lord, He is worthy of it. In Him, we can have a deep security, and we pray, Lord, that we'll keep tapping into that reality, that throughout life, when we feel uncertain, when we feel anxious, when we feel insecure, we can come before Jesus and know that we can find a, a deep comfort, a deep peace, and find rest there. 
Lord, we're so thankful for Jesus. And we do pray, Lord, as we uh, live out the life, or live out the gospel-centered life, Lord, that we'll keep giving honor and glory to him. For he's the one who says, he's the one who justifies us before you. And so we pray this, Lord, in your son's name. Amen.